Gridbox Media Programming is brought to you by. Do you wish you knew the saints better? Overwhelmed with all the events in Catholic history and just wish you could tie it all together? It's tough work, and even scientists have determined that it takes approximately 400 repetitions to create a new synapse in the brain. Unless it is done with play, in which case it takes between 10 and 20 repetitions. Introducing Saint Cards, where the facts about saints and history are presented in fun and engaging games for ages 4 to 104. Check out Saint Cards at saintcards.com and begin the fun for your family, school, and parish today. Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. What are you doing this Lent? The St. Paul Center is streaming their newest video Bible study for free starting Ash Wednesday. Based on Scott Hahn's renowned covenantal theology, this is a study no one should miss. Invite your friends, Catholic or not. Don't miss your chance to see this premium study for free. Go to stpaulcenter.com to sign up today. final episode of Hilaire Belloc's Characters of the Reformation. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. In this episode, we consider King Louis XIV of France. Louis XIV, the great king of France, whose reign covers the last half of the 17th century, is the typical figure on the Catholic side of the great drawn battle. He is what we may call the opposite number to William of Orange, though ten times greater and far more important. It is very important, when we are following the history of all this, not to read history backwards, that is, not to think of Europe as she later became, a civilization divided into two more or less equal halves, the Catholic and the Protestant cultures, with the latter gradually advancing and the former divided against itself. In the later 17th century, at the end of the drawn battle of the Reformation, the Protestant culture had saved itself but it was still very much weaker than the Catholic. The overwhelming majority of Europeans were still Catholic. On this account, the men who led the Protestant culture everywhere regarded themselves as being on the defensive. They were maintaining what they felt to be a very difficult and gallant resistance against greater superior forces, and the fact that they were able to make the battle a drawn one reinforced their courage and confidence in themselves. Louis Fourteenth by far the most powerful government on the Catholic side, was typical of the mixed state into which the religious cause had fallen. He was typical also of the way in which what had been a fairly clean-cut issue in the first lifetime of the Reformation, the issue as to whether the Catholic Church should or should not survive, whether the new heretics should also not break up civilization, had gradually settled down to something more complicated— much mixed up with the local and individual interests and politics. It had become, on the Protestant side, 
not only a question of maintaining Protestant culture, but for the leadership, of also keeping the enormous fortunes which they had suddenly made out of looting the Catholic Church during the Reformation Troubles. Meanwhile, on the Catholic side, the defense of the general civilization of Christendom and of its old traditions was confused and debased by something much less ideal, to wit, the particular national and dynastic ambitions of this and that Catholic monarch. That was why the French, during the whole affair, were hostile to the empire which was Catholic, why Paris and Vienna, the two centers of Catholic civilization, were hostile to each other. And that is why you so often find Rome in alliance, or half-alliance, with non-Catholic forces against the private ambition of one of the Catholic princes. Louis XIV's whole reign, from when he ascended the throne as a little boy to when he died as an old man in 1715, is illustrative of this. He was the head of the Catholic cause, the strongest individual power in that cause, and yet he devoted half his energy to keeping the French church wholly subject to his government and resisting papal authority therein, and all of his energy was spent reducing Catholic Austria as much as he could. This is what we call Gallicanism, the idea of national churches existing within the unity of the Catholic Church and yet maintaining highly developed local powers. This was the special creation of Louis XIV and his reign. Both at the height of his power, at the end of the second third of the 17th century, and in the decline of it in the last 20 years of his life, the national and dynastic motive of Louis was at least as strong as the religious motivation— and often, I'm afraid to say, much stronger. Apart from Louis XIV's championship of Catholicism was his armed excursion by invasion of his neighbors. The true explanation of Louis XIV's continually carrying on war outside his own country is to be found in the immediate past of that country and of his predecessors upon the throne of France. France had been, almost up to his birth, the battlefield of the two religions— Calvinism, the fighting force of the Reformation, and the spirit which gave it all its driving power, was a French thing. The French nobility had taken it up as a weapon to use against the monarchy. There was a moment when it looked as though France would go Protestant, even as it was, although this revelation did not succeed, a furious civil war raged in the country for half a lifetime. With the French thus divided amongst themselves, and indulging in their favorite folly of civil war, they naturally and inevitably suffered invasion. Time and again, foreign armies came in from the Spanish Netherlands, what today we call Belgium, and from the German Empire. All this tradition of peril and actual experience of it in childhood had so impressed the mind of Louis that when he came to possess power, after he was 18 years old, he was determined upon establishing two things— absolute unity and peace within the realm and security beyond his borders. Either, he said, I must suffer invasion or I must establish myself in a strong position beyond my borders. So when the king of Spain died, Louis claimed through his wife, a Spanish princess, the right to govern Spanish Netherlands in her name. On his attempt to enforce this right by arms followed all the fighting with which his name is associated today in Belgium. The predominance of the French power in Belgium alarmed the Calvinist Dutch merchant oligarchy who governed what is today Holland, and who had only just established their independence from Spain. 
They found they had got rid of the power of Spain immediately to the south of them in Brussels, only to see the much more formidable power of France with great armies immediately at their door. The Dutch would sometimes ally themselves with Louis XIV in order to lessen this danger. More often, they would be openly his enemies. But whether actually hostile or nominally allied, they always regarded Louis XIV as the great danger to their independence. England, after the restoration of the legitimate king, Charles II, who was Louis XIV's first cousin, could be used from time to time as an ally by Louis, but very uncertainly, for Charles II was determined to keep his throne over a nation now predominantly Protestant and jealous of French Catholic power. Charles II, therefore, skillfully played off the Dutch against Louis, and both of them against his own rebellious and disloyal wealthier classes, whose main effort was directed to lowering the power of the English crown. Elsewhere in Europe, the empire, the papacy, and the Spanish throne were all intermittently but generally hostile to Louis's scheme of making his realm secure from invasion by establishing himself in power upon and beyond his own national borders. The attack on Louis XIV was sufficient to exhaust French wealth and manpower, but it did not succeed in carrying on the invasion to the heart of France, nor did it succeed in shaking the power of the French throne or breaking up the unity of the French nation under Louis. The last piece of fighting at the very end of Louis XIV's reign turned upon the succession to the huge Spanish Empire at home and beyond across the Atlantic. This had been left by will to the grandson of Louis XIV, and Louis XIV determined to maintain this grandson's claim. He succeeded in this. The Spanish Empire was governed by that younger branch of his family for a hundred years to come. In the struggle, the Spanish Netherlands, which Louis had claimed to govern, with their capital at Brussels, were taken out of the Spanish Empire and given to Austria, in whose hands they remained until the wars of the French Revolution. Regarded, therefore, politically, Louis XIV's reign as a whole was the triumph of himself as a person and of the French power, though not the triumph of the Catholic cause in Europe, which, as we have seen, was divided. At any rate, his rule established the maintenance of preponderant Catholic power in Europe. But France only achieved this position at the expense to Catholic culture of continually supporting the smaller Protestant powers in Germany against the empire. Even in the English struggle, Louis XIV was lukewarm. When the issue lay between the success or failure of James II in Catholic Ireland, Louis XIV, although willing to help his cousin, only consented to do so in a very half-hearted way. If we turn from the political side to the purely religious, we find in Louis XIV's reign the source of nearly all that is followed on the Catholic side in Western Europe. The situation stood thus. When Louis XIV had come to the throne as a boy, French Protestantism, led by many of the great nobles, backed by their wealth and numerically strong all over the place, but especially in the South, was in a kind of hostile truce against the rest of the nation and of the Catholic monarchy which governed it. But socially, things were going in favor of the old religion. As the young king increased in power, won victories beyond the frontiers, and led his French civilization, which morally dominated Western Europe, the greater and lesser Protestant nobles began to waver. Their religious feelings had never been so strong as their political, and indifference or conversion back to Catholicism became commoner and commoner among them. 
It is probable that if the pressure had been allowed to go on uninterruptedly, it would have ended in the disappearance of most of the Huguenot Protestant centers, and France would have become uniform in culture, as England later became on the other side. But at a critical moment, about halfway through the reign, a grave error was committed. The king thought he could hasten the process of unity, and proceeded to outlaw the Calvinist religion in his dominions. Men professing Calvinism could no longer hold office or officer's rank. Every obstacle was put in the way of the practice of the Calvinist religion, even in private, and a worse feature was the quartering of troops upon recalcitrant districts, especially in the central mountains where Protestantism had a hold among the middle and even the lower classes. The sufferings and brutalities accompanying this policy have been exaggerated, as such things always are, but they were very great nevertheless. A considerable number of the French Protestants who could afford to do so emigrated. Those who remained behind, many of them very wealthy men, holding a disproportionate number of posts in the commerce and finance of the country, were roused to a tradition of hatred against the monarchy, and of course to the still stronger hatred of the traditional national religion. It was from this that later on the opposition to the principle of monarchy in France and the fashionable anti-clericalism of the 18th century proceeded. This sudden decision of Louis XIV to impose unity by force is known as the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, because, a lifetime before, it was by an edict called the Edict of Nantes that the French Protestants had been given privileges, and when the great religious wars had ended in a sort of truce. It was with this revocation of the Edict of Nantes, as with so many other things in history, an apparent success proved, in the long run, not only to be a failure, but the weakening and threatening destruction of what had seemed to be the successful side. There is a close parallel between all this and the corresponding action of England against Ireland, where the effort was also one to impose unity by force. There, an effort which at first apparently succeeded to the complete ruin of the Irish people, was found, after about a century, to have failed it left behind a permanent source of weakness to the victor. But if we sum up the reign of Louis XIV as a whole, we see it in this light. It finally sets the seal on the European reaction towards Catholicism, which had begun more than 50 years before Louis XIV was born. As to France herself, his court, the great poets who lived in it or influenced it, the great prose writers, the great churchmen, the great generals, all made French influence, and therefore, in a high degree, the Catholic culture as a whole, the normal culture in Western Europe. So, when Louis XIV died, the drawn battle appeared to have been settled once and for all on its last lines. The small but vigorous Protestant culture had been maintained, and was in possession of Great Britain, Scandinavia, and a large minority of the German-speaking people. But the Catholic culture was still overwhelmingly the most numerous in Europe, and seemed secure from further molestations. As is nearly always the case, the thing which seemed obvious to contemporaries was as a fact an illusion. Catholic culture in Europe was to meet a new foe within its own body, to wit, the skeptical anti-religious movement which has marked all the last two hundred years in France and Italy. The small Protestant powers were destined to increase vastly in political strength and still more in wealth through commerce and activity overseas. But all that was for the future. The death of Louis XIV may be taken to be the final term of this great seesaw struggle of the 17th century. The drawn battle resulted by 1715 
in a divided Europe. This is the conclusion of my reading of an abridged version of Hilaire Belloc's Characters of the Reformation. I hope you've enjoyed this excursion into more detail in the period of the Reformation and have seen how those times have influenced the times in which we live. The next podcast I'm planning is not so much about the past, but about the future. In my first history podcast, Triumphs and Tragedies, we had an overview of the history of the Catholic Church, and in Characters of the Reformation, we looked into more detail into the Reformation period. But now I'd like to explore with you John Allen's wonderful book, Future Church. We'll be looking week by week at different trends and discussing the chapters in his book so that we can envision what might happen in the future and the way the Holy Spirit might be leading the church in the 21st century and beyond. Thank you again for listening. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. CMF Curo is the country's first Catholic healthcare ministry to provide an affordable health sharing solution rooted in Catholic teaching and community. Learn more at MyCatholicHealthcare.com slash podcast. That's MyCatholicHealthcare.com slash podcast.